Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Daily Objective. And today we'll be talking about an actor who many of you know and love. He's in movies like uh, The Beaver, Lethal Weapon 4, uh, What Women Want. Yeah, good luck. Um, and he was canceled early on, if you want to use that term. We're going to get into uh, if the word cancel is a little bit of a package deal at, at this point, the way it's used. But Mel Gibson was one of the early people in the in recent times, I guess about 10 years ago, to get in trouble for private conversations that were recorded and leaked or, uh, you know, a police officer leaking uh, private remarks that he made. And he got in a lot of trouble. And in a weird way, I think it kind of um, it's like getting the chicken pox when you're a kid. It sucks, but it kind of grandfathered him in after that. So it's hard to get people to cancel him a second time, at least thus far. But he came under fire recently by an actor from West Wing named Joshua Molina, who says, like, you know, how, how is this guy still working, referring to Mel Gibson? So we're going to get into this. It raises a lot of interesting questions, such as, um, you know, separating the artist from the art, but also, like, judging somebody's private conversations and also maybe the sort of spectrum of evil when it comes to judging people. And luckily, I don't need to do this alone because I'm here with a wonderful co-host and a wonderful guest. First, we've got another actor. This is a guy who, last I checked, doesn't run around blaming the Jews for starting every war. But uh, he might have some skeletons in the closet. He might want to air here, uh, you know, to kind of beat the beat the left to the punch. Please welcome Mark Pellegrino. Hey, man. No, I get, I get canceled for defending Jews. Wow. Times have changed. Times have changed. And we've got a guy here who he's kind of one of the resident scholars here on the network. He also is a bit of, he's an historian. So maybe maybe we can ask him and find out, is it true that the Jews, in fact, started every war? As, uh, <laughs> as Mel Gibson, <laughs> as Mel Gibson oh, once, uh, once, so if you're, if anyone's confused by the reference, Mel Gibson, uh, so he was drunk driving, pulled over. He told a police officer, you know, hey, what's with the Jews? They started every war. Asked the police officer if he's Jewish. He said some things that uh, maybe he didn't really want to, uh, to go on the record, but uh, they ended up leaking, and that was a big controversy about 10 years ago. But I digress. Here he is, author of Creating Christ and the Passion of Ayn Rand's Critics, James Valiant. Well, thank you. Yeah, uh, I did. I on, Online about 15 years ago, I wrote an article uh, with respect to these controversies, the movie, uh, the uh, reaction by the international Jewish community, especially every rabbi in this country, uh, and his subsequent DUI arrest. Uh, so uh, I'm familiar with the topic in general, and I'm familiar with anti-Semitism and Christianity, uh, particularly conservative Catholicism, which Mel Gibson is uh, overtly uh, an adherent of. Um, can you maybe summarize kind of where you stood when you wrote those articles? Absolutely. When The Passion of the Christ came out, it was sold by Mel Gibson as a different than previous biblical epics. And we're all familiar with the famous biblical epics, say, the greatest story ever told, you know, these epic stories that were told about Jesus's life. Uh, King of Kings was another one. King of Kings had a silent version way back in the 20s that that, that was the set on which Ayn Rand and Frank O'Connor actually met was Cecil B. DeMille's silent version of King of Kings. Frank O'Connor was dressed up like a Roman centurion whipping Jesus. And of course, Ayn Rand fell in love with him immediately. <laughs> That's another story. Anyway, uh, 
the 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 fact is that Mel Gibson didn't want to have one of these uh, whitewash rewrites of the New Testament. He wanted to have a faithful rendition of what the gospel told about the death of Jesus as the gospels tell it. And the gospels, the first four books of the Christian uh, New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all tell the story of the execution, the famous crucifixion of Jesus Christ, founder of the Christian religion. Every single one of those gospels blames it collectively on the Jews. Period. There's no way of misunderstanding that when you read any of the Gospels in their original language. Judas betrays him, one of his own. Uh, Peter denies him. The Jewish Sanhedrin is constantly having arguments with Jesus about uh, doctrine, so they have him arrested for violating Mosaic law, and in a kangaroo court, convict him. They send him off to Pilate, the Roman governor, who declares Jesus to be innocent in all four Gospels outright but a jewish crowd gets really violent and they're about about to start a rebellion and three times they have to demand crucify him crucify him before pilate finally relents and in sort of a political cartoon washes his hands of it all um and says okay crucify him i'm i'm relenting to the jewish people in the book of matthew it's even worse we have matthew has the jewish crowd that demands jesus's execution say his blood is on us and on our children now, Mel Gibson, in his effort to uh, see the other biblical epic movies made in the 1960s and before about Jesus, all cleaned all that up. Less so in the 20s, but by the 1960s, all the anti-Semitic aspects, which are built into the Gospels, had been cleaned up from all the Jesus movies. They blamed the Romans, which is totally upside down from the theme of the Gospels. Mel Gibson said, no, no, I'm going to do a faithful version of the Gospels and the death of Christ. He did it in Aramaic. He did, even though the Gospels are written originally in Greek, he wanted to be authentic because the local language of the Jews at the time was Aramaic. So in Aramaic, he had subtitles, mind you, for English or whatever the country it was playing in. Uh, but when uh, the, rabbi, the rabbis of America collectively and uniformly uh, denounced the film as anti-Semitic, uh, Mel Gibson's response was, wait, I was just doing what the Bible, this is how the Bible tells the story. In order to appease them and mitigate that, he simply didn't put in subtitles, his blood is on us and on our children. They say it in Aramaic, so if you know Aramaic, it's still there, but he just didn't put it in the subtitle. So now, is that uh, anti-Semitism? Yeah in one sense, but then again, the Christian Bible is thoroughly anti-Semitic. Anti-Semitism is not a product of later resentments against the Jews or the Jews not accepting Christianity at all. It goes all the way back to the original, the very first stories that told about Jesus' life and death. And so in one sense, it, Mel Gibson was simply being faithful to his conservative uh, Christianity. Um, uh, so in that sense, Mel Gibson may be reflecting anti-Semitism, but it's a 2,000-year-old anti-Semitism. You know, when passion play performances were done during the dark and Middle Ages, they would <clears throat> almost always cause mob violence against local Jews. Yeah. Mob violence against local Jews. So that's the Bible that's anti-Semitic. It's the Jesus story that builds in anti-Semitism. So you can't really ascribe that to Mel Gibson. And when he said, look, I'm just doing the Bible, he was basically right. Mm -hmm. Now, the subsequent arrest 
does, I mean, in vino veritas goes the old statement, and he had been drinking. And so out comes when he's arrested all these, like you were pointing out, all these assertions about how Jews start all the wars and Jews are in control of Hollywood, even though he was a big director and producer at the time himself and a conservative Catholic. Mel Gibson is such a conservative Catholic on his property. Uh, I think it's in the Santa Barbara area of Southern California. He actually built a Catholic church. He objected to the liberal reforms in the 1960s, uh, Vatican II. Note this. In the 1960s, it took the Pope till the 1960s to collectively forgive the Jews for killing Jesus. The Pope and the Catholic Church, in, only in the 20th century and only in the wake of the Holocaust, forgave the Jews collectively for executing Jesus. Now, the story is total fiction in my mind. Uh, if Jesus was crucified, he was crucified by the Romans for being a rebel if there was a Jesus. Uh, not this at all. So uh, his conservative Catholicism is plain, and he did not like the direction that the Catholic Church had taken, and so he wanted to form his own ultra-conservative Catholic, uh, you know, church there in Southern California. So this definitely reflects his ideology, I believe, and it is a distinct, uh, distinctly extreme ideology even within uh, Catholicism today. Um, so in that sense, I do believe his religious ideas lean him in the direction of a severe uh, anti-Semitism, and you could hear conspira Jewish conspira ridiculous Jewish conspiracy jump coming out of his mouth. Um, on the other hand, his presentation in the film, The Passion of the Christ, was, in my view, a faithful rendition. In all of its glory snuff film detail, was uh, a, a faithful, uh, you know, movie a version of the Gospels, much more face faithful than earlier 20th century film versions of the life of Christ. Okay, sounds like the passion of the Christ uh, is not necessarily, I mean, it's, it's not at all evidence or proof of Mel Gibson having a problem with the Jews. He is truly just adapting the New Testament into a, a faithful film. And then some of the remarks he made when he was drunk, I guess, are supposed to, in the minds of some people, like show like, oh, see, he was motivated by <clears throat> hatred of the Jews. But I don't see it that way, personally. I, I actually wanted to take this opportunity to ask you guys what you think about generally judging somebody for what they say in private or when they're very drunk. You know, I know the, the cliche goes like, well, it's their true thoughts and it comes out when they're drunk. Is that necessarily so? Or are they belligerent? I mean, how do you guys tend to look at this type of thing? Do you have, yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I think taking, I think you can go to anybody's life and take their ugliest moment or the moment when they're at their, their nadir. And he was clearly at the, at the bottom of some, emotional trough in that moment and if you were to publicize it there wouldn't be a single one of us that wouldn't that wouldn't you know come out on the wrong side of scrutiny you know so um i i i hate to paraphrase hamlet and say none of us would scape whipping right um if if people could look at our worst moments and then popularize those and and then claim that we that was our identity that's that uh, was our entire self, you know. Um, I think I think that's a really slippery slope and a very dangerous, a very dangerous thing. And cancel modern cancel culture sort of uh, gloms onto those um, emotional moments and tries to define people by them. And I don't know that that defines defines him. I, you know, have a personal experience with Mel Gibson. I did *Lethal Weapon* three. I did a long fight scene with with Mel. And uh, we ended up talking jujitsu and Shakespeare. And the guy invited me into his trailer and fixed me a cappuccino. And we talked movies and, and uh, 
working with Franco Zeffirelli on Hamlet and the, and the, 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 the pains and problems of working on that film and how it, he was, uh, in my mind, able to overcome some tremendous obstacles. Just it's a, a generous guy who was a superstar at the time. We didn't have to, you know, uh, didn't have to talk to a day player and, and um, you know, engage me for hours the way we did, but he was kind and intelligent and, uh, and that's the other side of him. And I think that has to, I think that that context has to be taken into consideration when, when you're talking about fucking with somebody's livelihood and cancel culture today has become extremely subjective. I think, I think, I think in reality, if, if somebody's political ideology or prejudices um, really bother you, then of course, in private, you're entitled to not, you know, um, not buy their stuff, not, not, not to associate with them in any way. Uh, but to make, to make those things, uh, uh, the generalized angst, you know, to, to make them, uh, to make moments in somebody's life, to decontextualize them and promote them as if they're a person, the entire person, I think is a very dangerous uh, occupation. And it's, it's becoming a preoccupation with our culture right now. Yeah, and here, here I was shouting out Lethal Weapon 4, a movie that changed my life growing up because of the Chris Rock and Joe Pesci scenes, but uh, not realizing you were actually in the previous one, which I now need, must put on my to-watch list. Um, so, okay, the, um, the other controversy was uh, from around 10 years ago as well, uh, a girlfriend of his or ex-girlfriend leaked a phone conversation in which Mel Gibson was very angry at her. Uh, he yelled at her showed a lot, a lot of uh, temper tantrum at one point, tells her he hopes she gets R-worded by a pack of N-words. I'm not going to say it on this family program. But um, again, I say, yes, it's very embarrassing. And it certainly suggests he, he needs a lot of therapy and a lot of soul searching. And I would like to see him share some of that um, spiritual uh, soul searching with the public to kind of help uh, sort of demonstrate how you can come back from that place to somewhere better. But should that be seen as like definitive proof that he is motivated by pure hatred and racism? To me, it's a, I'm more worried about him possibly being violent um, when he's that angry. Like that to me is the biggest uh, fear more than that. He's part of this, um, you know, movement, you know, movement of racism developing in the world. How, how do you, how do you tend to look at though at that James? Well, I think we need to make some very important distinctions. And I think that those distinctions are being totally uh, glossed over in the modern cancel culture discussion. For example, um, the left will accuse people of racism who are not racist at all. And they'll cancel people for what they regard as a racist policy position that they take. When of course the motive for the policy position had nothing to do with racism, they just see it as racism and therefore the other, the other person's a white supremacist and gone. So first of all, someone's opinion that someone is say a racist is uh, not the same thing as being a racist. So we need to make individual judgments here, uh, not collective judgments, and they need to be on a case by case basis because accusations are not the same as some reality we need to be concerned about. Even if a person has an objectionable viewpoint, for me, socialism is an objectionable viewpoint. Do we cancel socialists? Do they no longer have a right to participate in discussion? The mere fact that you said something sympathetic about some disastrous socialist policy that really did kill people, is that worth it? Now, you could be an, could, can you be an honest socialist? Um, now, I think it depends on the individual context, doesn't it? 
I'll make a distinction between behavior and opinion too. I think even if a person does say something that is objectively racist, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're gonna go do violence, join the KKK, you know, and act on it and make that distinction. It's an ugly opinion. It's an ugly opinion that supports the terrible action, in effect, gives aid and comfort to it, but it's still not doing the violence. To compare those kind of situations to say, and this is what we were doing in the earlier discussion, to say, go back to the 1950s, where McCarthyism was the big issue. And the left then was complaining left and right that people who were proven communists or people who would refuse because they were, as it turned out, mostly communists, refused to say whether or not they belonged to the Communist Party, which was being funded by the Soviet Union at the time. Uh, we're not getting jobs by, you know, Jack Warner, who a uh, big producer of Warner Brothers or uh, Louis B. Mayer, big guy. They were anti-communists and they were ferociously, Disney, Walt Disney, they were ferociously anti-communists. So it was hard, they said, for these communists to get work in Hollywood, say. Well, wait, does an employer have to hire a person who's a Nazi? No, a private employer can say, well, you're a communist, I'm not going to employ you. And at the end of the day, these guys really didn't hurt their careers. They worked under, you know, like Dalton Trumbo, the writer, he worked under uh, false names until he finally got his name on Spartacus. And then it became a feather in his cap to left-wing Hollywood that he'd been accused of this. Uh, it was supposed to be a nightmare time for Hollywood, this McCarthyism, uh, when in fact, these people were in fact, you know, mostly communists, uh, little question about it. I mean, think of it in the 1940s american spies working for the u.s government had given the nuclear bomb secret to the soviets by 1963 a lone communist assassinated a u.s president now should uh, mccarthy be concerned about communists working in the united states government sure was he an obnoxious jerk yeah but he underestimated the number of communists working in the united states government so if we're looking at the cold war and a context like that and we're saying, should private employers be free to employ or not employ communists? Okay, that's one thing. If it is, however, someone's opinion that we happen to disagree about, how much of that, uh, how, to what range are we going to say, I'm canceling that person as such for something they say? As the you know, liberal opinion changes, and in the last 20 years has dramatically changed on how we should treat, for example, transsexuals. Uh, if that changes, is someone's 20-year-old opinion about the nature of transgenderism even relevant? Do we allow people to change? Do we allow people to think? Do we allow people individual context and difference? I think that would be a big mistake to just cancel people for private opinions uh, uh, just for their private opinion. On the other hand, there is a line. I have a strong line. I, as an employer, wouldn't employ a Nazi or a communist. I think in that sense, it's perfectly reasonable. But those are important. All of those, in my view, are important distinctions. And uh, a remark that somebody made once is not necessarily indicative of their entire worldview, especially if they're drunk or extremely angry at the moment. Um, so I, I've, I've been thinking a lot lately about uh, platonic stuff, you know, like how um, to Plato, like there's like a perfect form. Uh, and and then like other like other rationalist philosophers would they expect they need like everything needs to be perfect in their system. I hope I hope uh, this is making sense with the vocabulary I'm using um, with you, James. Like, like, do I sometimes cancel things or people or the whole world in my mind when like one thing is wrong and I start to say, okay, throw it all out? Like, so I, I try to introspectively stop myself from reacting the way the mob 
reacts uh, to somebody like Mel Gibson. And I'm wondering, I, I've wondered, does this come from philosophies like the one Plato gave the world? Or is this just kind of something our subconscious does when we're not fully collected? And then Plato was sort of giving name to it. He was sort of uh, spelling it out explicitly. Intrinsicism. Intrinsicism here is the enemy. It's the... Uh... What, what the the way religious people have been taught to think, the way Kant really just laid it in, the way Plato taught the West to think, uh, ideas are the ultimate reality, not this sensory world of particular facts in which we live. And so they regard values as built into the world. So the minute you cross a value line, you are a demon and that's it and you're out. See, I don't take that opinion. I think that uh, Wagner, the great composer Wagner, famous for his operas, right? Siegfried and so forth, the ring cycle. He was a vicious anti-Semite. Talk about a real anti-Semite. That man hated Jews in an irrational way. Does that make all, now I can perfectly understand because Hitler's favorite composer was Wagner. My father had a friend who survived the Holocaust in effect and you couldn't play Wagner music in the house when he was over even, you know, the ride of the Valkyries or something. Uh, do I have sympathy for that? I sure do. And I would never play, have played Wagner to a Holocaust survivor. On the other hand, my evaluation of Wagner's music has to be separate from my understanding of him as an anti-Semite. And this is true of, of everyone. I mean, who really cares what an actor's political view, no offense, Mark, but who really cares what Einstein's view on politics was? He was a physicist. Who really cares uh, what uh, Mel Gibson's view on politics is. He's an actor and a director. So uh, to me, a person can still have value. Their work can have value and they can still have all kinds of crazy ideas that are only tangentially, if at all, related to the value they're providing. I think that distinction needs to be made as well. And so the line that we draw when we say, no, 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 I'm not going to do any business. I'm never going to go see a Mel Gibson movie again, say, or I'm Jack Warner. I'm never going to hire this Dalton Trumbo again as a writer. I think that has to be a very serious line in which you're saying, no, I'm promoting you and you are truly standing for evil. Mark, you've uh, you've obviously worked with a lot of people that you strongly disagreed with fundamentally. Uh, maybe a lot of them are on the other side of the aisle from Mel Gibson. They're more egalitarian leftist, socialist, whatever. I mean, is this something you've ever struggled with or has it been pretty kind of second nature for you to just kind of uh, properly categorize things? Have you ever struggled with like, do I want to work with this producer or alongside this actor, anything like that ever come up in your life? Not not working with particular people, but but certainly working on projects. Uh, I, I didn't go into a <clears throat> to an Aaron Sorkin audition because it was political and I would be articulating his perspective that I did not agree with. I think he's a great writer and I would I would do anything he was in provided I didn't have to articulate his political perspective or if I or if I was given the job of articulating the opposition and, and sometimes he could write that very well I would I would certainly do that if asked uh, but it's never it's never it's never been a component in, in forming a judgment about an actor. I, I could work with somebody I fundamentally disagree with and enjoy them, enjoy the value they bring, as James said, as, as an actor. Um, but everything now is politicized and kids are being taught to be activists and everything you say is in a political context now. Everything you do is in a political context and it's seen through that lens. And I think that's a very destructive place for us to be. But hey, when the when the communists were being canceled, when the, when the communist party was being outlawed, when when McCarthy was, you know, hunting these people down in 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 the government, 
communists, the communists reflected an objective threat to the United States of America. They, they fomented violence. They, they participated in the assassination of Trotsky. You know, the, the grandmother next door who was a communist participated in passing the notes that enabled the assassin to kill Trotsky. They, they were all a part of a, of a real fifth column that, re, that really did want to undo uh, not only the principles of, of, of civilization, but, but in, in completely repudiate them through real acts of violence. I mean, they were an objectively dangerous group of folks, and they still are. Mm-hmm. The um, the P, a lot of the people calling Mel Gibson a, an anti-Semite and saying, you know, kind of like he's what's wrong with the world and he's who the Jews need to be worried about. A lot of them uh, seem very sympathetic to the Palestinian causes, the movement, Palestinian movement, Hamas, Iran. I mean, or they're they're not too concerned about Iran, who's been openly saying for something like 20 years they're building a nuke they plan to use on uh, several million Jews nearby. It's like. Are these people motivated by, you know, protecting the Jews or protecting anything? Or are they are they being very political and very selective with who they choose to cancel? Well, let's see who is more an objective threat to Jews in the world today, Elon Omar. Or Mel Gibson because of his drunken statements. Mel Gibson works with Jewish producers, Jewish actors, Jewish staff. Mel Gibson has objectively worked in a cooperative way with Jewish professionals in Hollywood. Elon Omar wants to cut off all all private investment to Israel because of the Palestinian issue. Uh, now, objectively, my friends on the left, who is more of a threat? Who's more anti-Semitic in their objective threat that they pose to modern Jews? I mean, that's an objective answer right there. So if we we're going to cancel uh, Mel Gibson. It seems to me we should cancel uh, represent Congresswoman Elon Omar long before we should cancel Mel Gibson, eh? Mm-hmm. Now, and this kind of raises. Uh, uh, we were taught. We started by talking about Passion of the Christ, and uh, James, you 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 pointed out that it was faithful to the Bible, and you you called the Bible itself, the New Testament, anti-Semitic. Is it is it anti-Semitic, or is that it has it been used by anti-Semites through the centuries? Because it's a it's a story about you know a community of people or a a country, a a mob of people killing Jesus. Let's say that the. That's not necessarily saying that all Jews did something wrong or that they should always be punished for it. Oh, but that's in effect. Well, you have to go back to the context in which the New Testament emerged. The the first century saw a violent rebellion between uh, religious Jews and the Roman Empire. It was that great Jewish war of the first century AD which caused the temple to be reduced to the Wailing Wall it is today. And it was Jewish messianic rebels who wanted independence from the Roman Empire and fought a desperate war that may have cost up to a million lives. And they were messianic. Uh, In fact, all the ancient historians are clear that their messianic prophecies are what inspired their military, their rather hopeless military endeavor. The New Testament is clearly a critical response to nationalist militant Jewish rebels of the first century. It advocates internationalism. Anyone can be a Jew. You don't have to be circumcised, says Paul. You don't have to follow kosher diet, all of those silly Jewish rules. They just alienate the Jews from the world around them. That's the, the New Testament's position on Torah and uh, Moses and the uh, Mosaic law. Uh, peace? What are you kidding? In the Gospel of Matthew, for example, and in the other synoptics, Jesus declares that in this time of rebellion that a, not just a Roman, but a Roman centurion has more faith than any Jew. 
So the way the Gospels were, the Gospels are clearly written, I just went through the Passion narrative, which clearly blames the Jews collectively. The Romans said he's innocent. The Romans didn't want him arrested at all. Why would they want Jesus arrested? He advocated peace. He advocated paying your taxes, rendering unto Caesar. He was friends with tax collectors. So the portrait of Jesus is totally pro-Roman and anti-everything about Jewish culture in the first century, literally everything. And it's Jesus's rhetorical jousts with Pharisees, Sadducees, uh, various Jewish authorities, scribes, temple priests. They're the ones who are constantly complaining Jesus, is, his disciples are working on the Sabbath. And what do you think of kosher diets? Nothing that goes into your body that's impure. So Jesus is a consistent critic of Judaism. And he's having arguments with Jewish authorities of various kinds, and it's they who arrest him. They arrest him for violating Mosaic law after he's betrayed by one of his own. And it, it, the, the Romans throw up their hands. This is a religious dispute. We don't care. And how is the theme then come out? The Jews misunderstood their concept of Messiah, and therefore they deserved the defeat they got at the Roman hands. And this is exactly how every Christian writer in the second, third, fourth centuries, the very earliest Christian writers from the start, interpreted the Gospels that way. And as I say, from the very beginning, when they would do passion play uh, uh, performances during the Dark and Middle Ages, they would almost inevitably cause mob violence by Christian Jews, uh, by Christians against the local Jews. Uh, it's not a hidden message. It's so obvious that it will over and over and over Christians have said that the Jews killed Jesus. And I mean, listen to Martin Luther in the 1500s. He was absolutely convinced that it was the Jews' fault. And this has been the consistent opinion of Christians since the Gospels. So it's not only in the Gospels, it's the way Christians have been interpreting the Gospels. As I say, it wasn't until the 20th century that the Pope collectively forgave the Jews for killing Jesus. So no, it's anti-Semitic. Uh, it's been interpreted in an anti-Semitic way since the beginning. It's anti-Semitic in its in the I regard the Gospels as fiction, and if you regard them as allegorical fiction, there's little doubt what the theme plot theme there, using Ayn Rand's term, is. The Jews killed Jesus and therefore deserved the punishment they got with the destruction of the temple and their defeat in the Jewish war. And all of that being the case, uh, it sounds like we agree, all of us, that we're, to part of living in the in today's world is that we we can't uh, cancel all Christians. Like we can't cancel Mel Gibson for for reading the Bible and shooting a movie based on what he read in there. It is true. It sounds like the Catholic Church um, perpetuated anti-Semitism through the ages and. Um, most or all Christian variants and sects have uh, at least a little bit of that left. And I think the only way that'll ever be gone is when Christianity sort of um, sort of dissolves into and is reduced down to a Christmas tree and saying, God bless you and a better philosophy uh, taking its place. Um, I found the Holocaust that did horrify American Christians. And so you did see a dramatic change in sort of uh, the, both the Hollywood presentation of the life of Jesus, which cleaned up all that anti-Semitic stuff, uh, but also uh, in Christian writings generally. So there are distinctions, but it is the Christians who are evading the anti-Semitism in the last uh, 80 years that are the ones who need to belly up to the bar about the original message of the New Testament.
It seems that the more uh, Christians have been enlightened or kind of uh, the more they put God in the backseat and, you know, like Aristotelian influences in the driver's seat, the more the Jews don't seem so bad to them anymore. So we can see the more capitalism and reason and individual rights come about and, and become popular, the more the Jews are seen as less of a problem. And the reverse is also true, which is why I think, uh, and this is maybe a bit of a can of worms with, uh, with our uh, co-host, but I think we need to be very concerned about the reemergence of religion because um, the way it's coming back, it's probably not going to be, uh, you know, Thomas, uh, Thomas Jefferson or like kind of an enlightenment type of Christianity. It's probably going to be very vicious. Uh, I actually, I, too bad we didn't have you uh, here for that debate that we had. I don't know if you caught that, James, but uh, Mark and I debated which is worse, uh, religion or skepticism. But uh, that's yeah. a hard call because they kind of depend on each other. That was, Indeed. yeah. Mm -hmm. That's part of what we explored. Mark, uh, anything? Well, I think you're right to uh, fear the, a rise, a new rise of the religious right. Uh, um, a, a highly politicized and vicious version of Christianity is, is very possible. It's in reaction to the radical skepticism and nihilism that we're seeing on the left that dominates the culture. <clears throat> and it's Rand who can fill the vacuum between the two and annihilate both sides. Um, but um, nobody knows that yet except us. Yeah, on that we agree. So uh, you know, we can we can debate all day, but we're we're debating uh, not not in terms of essentials or fundamentals. I think. All right, super chat time. Robert with two dollars says canceled or boycotted or simply ignored. Regina with two euros. Thank you for that. Um, and then we've got Louise with four pounds. Allison with ten dollars says Mark on a Tuesday TDO is awesome. Here's $10. I was given an option to watch The Passion of the Christ for extra credit in a Southern public school. I forgot the subject. I thought nothing of it then. Wow, I would have I been alarmed by that, but maybe I'm more sensitive to that type of thing coming from you know, the particular background I do. But the film's a gruesome, gruesome snuff film. In it's a, hard, it's, it's hard to focused, watch. Yeah, it focuses on the torture and the slow agony of Jesus. You know, it's like one of those medieval uh, Catholic crucifixion things with an emaciated Christ and a suffering Christ bleeding from. I think the darkness of that movie should give you an indication of, of what's going on in Mel's soul. I think that reflects something inside of him. See, to focus, I, to focus I, on that rather than the redemption of Christ, rather than the, the resurrection. You know, that, right. See, Christianity says we're that rotten, that we need a human sacrifice to endure that much agony because we're that depraved. And the, the focus on human dep depravity and the suffering of Jesus is to focus on just that element. And I think that is a disturbing element, both of Christianity and probably Mel Gibson's uh, psychology, but I wouldn't want to go further into that <laughs> in that way. Uh, but I, I would make that distinction. I think it's really important. It is interesting to me after so many decades of the story of Jesus being sort of like watered down by Hollywood to see that something like the Passion of the Christ is produced and is popular. Maybe that tells us something about the way the culture was starting to feel and kind of turn away from what I think a lot of people see as kind of a failed experiment. A lot of people, they see the pursuit of happiness as a goose chase or they see um, individualism as sort of passe and and they look at maybe a decade like the 90s and saying, oh, look at all these miserable, self-mutilating, alienated youth. Maybe it's time to turn to something um, spiritual, so to speak. And, and that's around the time that Mel Gibson produced the movie he did. 
Um, that's kind of how I tend to look at things a little bit. But I know it's hard anytime we're going to make such uh, general statements. We're talking about millions or billions of people. Um, so it's well, hard to do. Excellent point. Mm -hmm. If the left produces a nihilistic culture, a nihilistic culture, is that less or more objectionable than Mel Gibson, uh, you know, returning to primitive Christianity is sort of the answer. And this is where values come from. They're both wrong. They're both, one's radically subjectivist and nihilistic. The other is a moral intrinsicist with the most primitive sort of uh, racist kind of, of religion. And, but, so both are wrong, but if we're gonna cancel one, don't we cancel the, I mean, at what point do we draw a line here? Um, and uh, the left would draw it, of course, all in their way. The, the right, I be firmly believe, if they had the cultural upper hand, they would draw it in their way. Mm -hmm. The 90s certainly were a violent uh, period in entertainment, generally from music to mo movies and all this stuff. I mean, uh, violence was the cool thing. So, yeah, uh, the Passion of the Christ was hardly uh, breaking new grounds, um, but perhaps it was sort of packaging it in a context that bothered people. Um, Marilene with $5 says, I went to a Lethal Weapon movie at a time when I was struggling with depression. It cheered me up a lot, not canceling that memory. I got one question for you, Marilene. Do you really want to jump? You guys get that reference? All right. <laughs> I might have just broken everybody's headphones just now, but uh, I don't actually don't hear anything. I don't know if uh, <laughs> okay, now I hear. It. All right. Uh, Allison, is I, I, I see laughter, but not hear it. You know, guys like me, we got to hear laughter to feel okay. <laughs> okay, I'll laugh out loud now. <laughs> please, please. Allison, <laughs> that was funny. <laughs> Thank you. Allison with $2 says, I think it was my government and economic class. I mean, uh, it's interesting that you were, I guess, I mean, I could contemplate a, a situation where it's, it's proper for even a public school, as paradoxical as that is, uh, to assign students to watch The Passion of the Christ or to give them extra credit for it because of it's a relevant uh, product in the culture. But to assign it because like, hey, you should see this to know God loves us and was willing to suffer for us. Now that to me is a violation of the, you know, separation of church and state. So I guess I would want to know the reason it was, it was offered in that class. Those are all the super chats we have. Uh, really interesting conversation. I guess, uh, I guess Christianity is more hostile to the Jews than I even realized. Uh, James, I still haven't read your book, but I've seen you speak about, about its thesis, which is that Christianity is like Taco Bell. That's you know? it. That's it. Uh, I would, you know, everyone says, well, it can't be anti-Semitic because it's based on Judaism, you know, and it certainly was aimed at the rebellious Jews of the time. So it had to be based on Judaism, but it also had to say, you guys really screwed up and made a big, big mistake. Um, <laughs> and so it was very critical built in that they would have to kill their misunderstanding the concept of Messiah. They killed their own Messiah. So it's very, very extreme and it's extreme at the at its original source no question about it the uh when i say taco bell what i'm saying is christianity bears the same relation to judaism that taco bell does to authentic mexican food it is mm -hmm. recreated for a foreign palate made digestible for a foreign palate uh and basically has only a vague resemblance to the original yeah and the more capitalist and rational our culture gets, the more we will see actual Christianity reduced down to something fun and colorful and fast 
and hardly um, consequential in your life unless you eat too much of it. Um, <laughs> and I, I just want to say, I love Taco Bell. I, 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 I hope none of it was meant to disparage it. I think it was, I think it's obviously, oh, no, no. <laughs> it's obviously a wonderful success story and it made it into your book that way. Um, all right. Well, coming up at 7 p.m. UK time, it's I Am Justice Study Group, which is Don Watkins' new book. Don will not be there this time, but he will be there and has been there other times. So uh, non-members, this is your uh, kind of coming to Jesus moment, if you will. You're kind of like Mel Gibson just had a temper tantrum moment <laughs> where you need to kind of reflect on where your life is going and think about if this is something you want to join. The answer is yes. Uh, 8.30 p.m. UK time, James. The, the presently uh, present James will be discussing Kant versus Sullivan, an essay by Ayn Rand. Yes. Um, okay. Yes. Uh, the producer adds it's from the 1970 edition of the objectivist. And it was also in philosophy who needs it. Yes. Wow. Look and at me. one of her most power in my view, one of her most powerful essays. Awesome. All right, everybody. Well, I guess, uh, I mean, uh, I'm happy to keep this going if you guys have any other thoughts, but other than otherwise, we can, uh, we can jump over to Clubhouse for a little while if you guys are available for that. Um, are you guys? I'll jump, off I'll, I'll jump over with you. Cool. Uh, I, may, I may have to do a little review for uh, the upcoming uh, episode, but you guys have fun. All right. Thanks, James. <laughs> Thanks, James. Uh, real, real honor to have you here. And thank you, Mark. Uh, thank you. See you guys back tomorrow for the Daily Objective, and goodbye. Take care.